0: Welcome to As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Sharon Shu,
1: And I'm Karis Ellison. Today we're discussing the first half of Unnatural Death, the third Peter Whimsy novel.
0: In this book, Lord Peter is investigating what he calls the perfect crime, where there is no evidence that a crime even occurred at all. So, Karis, um, let's give our listeners a little bit of background, given that we often talk about everything but the crime, (laughs) Uh, and not everybody is reviewing the source material maybe as closely as we are. Um, But yeah, we started off by saying that Lord Peter calls this the perfect crime, and would you mind just explaining what he means by that?
1: So yeah, this book opens with Peter Whimsey and Charles Parker having dinner together in a restaurant and just having a conversation about um, a poisoning case, like a a historical one. And someone overhears their conversation about, well, someone should have realized that this poisoning was going on. And uh, they meet a young man who's a young doctor who tells them a story about his own experience, about how doctors have to be very cautious about revealing their suspicions and the story that he tells them is a little bit complicated Uh, but he had a an elderly patient who was dying of cancer who died suddenly you know despite her illness he had expected her to live for at least another six months and she dies suddenly and he doesn't understand and he asked for a postmortem. And the result of his diligence and caution is that he becomes the subject of a tremendous amount of gossip. He starts losing clients, his practice falls apart, and he has to move away uh, and try and find another, another living as a doctor. And when he gives the details of the case, which include the fact that there's no clear cause of death you know his patient officially died of heart failure but he's like there i did there wasn't a clear cause for the heart failure and there are suspicious circumstances where she was a very wealthy woman and she couldn't no one could get her to write a will because she was afraid of death and her only living relative is her niece who kept insisting that her aunt was on the verge of death, even though the doctor was sure that she wasn't. And all these things really catch Lord Peter's interest. And so Lord Peter, Lord Peter's just like, I'm going to investigate this.
0: What could possibly go wrong?
1: What could possibly go wrong? And so despite the fact that the doctor, his name isn't given at any point in the first couple of chapters. um, But despite the fact that he says, no, no. You know, I don't think you need to investigate.
0: Right, And it's been a couple of years at that point, right? Right. It's been, I think, three years. Mm -hmm. So he's Uh, like, it's in the past. Yeah, he's like, it's in the past.
1: I don't want to get into any more trouble. But Lord Peter, like this book makes a point of reminding us that Lord Peter is a deeply curious person. And his desire to investigate things is driven by that curiosity. and He's just like, I am too interested to drop this.
0: Mm-hmm. He, he says at one point to Parker, like, I think this is the case I've been waiting for my entire yeah. like, career as an amateur detective.
1: Yeah, he calls it the case of cases.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, he has a whole speech about it in uh, chapter eight. So Lord Peter is convinced that there has been a murder. He's convinced that the niece did it. And he is convinced that if he can dig up the people involved and poke around, that he will get the murderer to make a mistake so that they can find not only proof that she's the murderer, but proof that a murder happened.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think one of the um, one of the puzzling aspects that the doctor brings up, which we should also mention is that, in terms of opportunity, it seems like really only the niece possibly had an opportunity to mm-hmm. like create circumstances where heart failure was possible. But it also doesn't benefit her because the the aunt had always told her like, you know, you're, I'm not going to make a will, but you're going to get everything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not one of those cases where she needed to preempt a will being made or...
1: Right. There wasn't any hint that the aunt was going to leave the money somewhere else. There was there was no one else for her to leave it to. And so, like, why on earth would she have a motive to murder her aunt if she can't wait six months for this tremendous amount of money? Like,
0: you know, she's going to
1: get it all soon.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no reason to bring murder into the equation, it seems. Yeah, yeah. So that's
1: the, that's the setup for this mystery.
0: Yeah. I guess it's, it's interesting to me that this is, this is one of the first of kind of several inheritance plot mysteries, right, mm-hmm. that we get. So Unpleasantness at the Bologna Club, which we'll be reading next, is also revolves around a plot about a will and about inheritance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And at least what is Strong Poison?
1: Yeah, Strong Poison deals with, like, Inheritance comes up as a question. Mm-hmm. Really, so does, it also comes up and Have His Carcass.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's really, I mean, Sayers, I think, is picking up on, in a lot of ways, like, that most Victorian of tropes, right? <laughs> like, somebody's gonna die, and where are they gonna leave their money?
1: Yeah. As Sayers has Peter say in Unpleasantness the Bologna Club, people so often Uh, Lose their heads when wills are
0: involved. It's very true. You know, this follows up on kind of that other Victorian tropey book of clouds of witness. Though I I think there's, you know, maybe there's, there's a lot more that feels like contemporary to the moment in this book, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, the plot hinges on certain things that we can't, I think, go into too much at the moment. For spoiler reasons. Yeah. Uh, but there there are more contemporary references in this book than I think in just about any of the other books.
0: Well, and I'm also thinking specifically of like, how many spinsters and single women show up. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly you know, in some ways, like a concern after World War One, where a generation of men died, right? this this question or this problem of surplus women.
1: Yeah, it was even a problem before World War One, I looked this up to double check. And people were concerned about the disparity between the population of men and women, beginning in basically the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, right? Mm. Um, And it kind of hinged on that idea that, oh, women are going out to work, they aren't at home raising children and so like the fact that women outnumber men and also women are not doing their job of produ- producing more people <laughs> <laughs> it was just causing there were like there was a little bit of panic people mm-hmm. were concerned people were writing opinion pieces about it
0: of course they were
1: <laughs> of course they were um and you know certainly after so many men died in world war 1 it became much more of a mainstream concern. And I mean, it is true that, you know, there are lots of women who would have probably married, you know, like that's the life route that they would have chosen. And it just no longer was an option for them because there was no one for them to
0: marry. Right. It's so interesting to me too, because I believe this is, this is the first book that Sayers composes and publishes after she herself married. And there's, you know, there's been quite a lot written about her marriage as one of, you know, maybe not being entirely between intellectual equals or that her husband, who was a journalist, um, once she started becoming really famous for the Lord Peter books, was resentful that she was carrying the the family financially. So it's interesting to me that she has so many, that this book contains so many single women kind of at this crucial juncture of her life where, you know, she's she's had the, the unhappy interest in John Corno. She's had the failed love affair with Bill White and, you know, given birth to an illegitimate son and now she's finally married. Um, but she's clearly still really, really grappling with this question of, like, what are the options available to women, yeah. I think, especially if they they choose not to go the traditional route.
1: Yeah, because we really have, like, a whole range of women in different circumstances. That seems like a good introduction to one of our favorite characters. Yes. In all of (laughs) the Lord Peter Whimsy books.
0: Yes, we get to talk about Miss Clemson this episode. Miss Clemson. Um, And I was just, I was so, like, really chuckling to myself rereading this bit. So right after Peter gets this case that doesn't seem to be a case dropped in his lap, he's like, oh, yes, Charles, let's I I would really like to, you know, I would like to introduce you to somebody in my life. And there's just like. Paragraph after paragraph, where Parker thinks he's being taken to to see <laughs> Peter's mistress, and he's trying to be like such a good sport about it, and you know, like really open minded. Um, but uh, he's so embarrassed.
1: He's so embarrassed. I love the line where it says that um, Parker was not sure he liked it. He conducted his own life with an earnest middle class morality, which he owed to his birth and upbringing. Yeah. So like he's just like, mm, this isn't my
0: thing, but okay. Right. And uh, at some point, Peter says, uh, oh, yeah, of course, there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said. But after all, I dare say all those wives and porcupines, as the child said, must have soured his disposition a little. And Parker just responds quite, but the narrative says, "Um, poor fish, he added to himself. They always seem to think it's different. (laughs) I think I think Peter is like very knowingly poking him a little bit too but yeah uh, <laughs> Peter so is
1: just rambling along although I think you know like right after that bit that you just mentioned you know Peter is just rambling and he's talking about like outlet people mm-hmm. need an everybody needs an outlet you can't really blame people if it's just that they need an outlet they can't help it I think it's much kinder to give them an outlet than make fun <laughs> of them in books and after all it isn't very difficult to write books <laughs>
0: hmm
1: <laughs> yes which um the quote that's at the beginning of this chapter chapter three which is called a use for spinsters the quote is there are two million more females than males in england and wales and this is an awe-inspiring circumstance uh which is from gilbert franco who is a a popular novelist of the time
0: hmm.
1: and i i wonder
0: <laughs> if
1: this line is just a little jab a little jab at him
0: Yeah. But then they, so they arrive at the ostensible mistress's flat and who do they discover instead?
1: They meet Miss Clemson, who is an elderly spinster, elderly but energetic, Mm -hmm. deeply religious, Roman Catholic. Oh, she's, she's so delightful. I love her so much. (laughs) And we learn that Peter hasn't been keeping her as his mistress. He's been keeping her as uh an inquiry agent
0: yeah she's she's essentially like a a baker street irregular for people who are familiar with sherlock holmes right like one of the the people that he can send out on his behalf um into situations where like he wouldn't be the appropriate person to follow a line of inquiry um kind of similarly i think to how we were saying in an earlier episode, that Bunter, like he always sends Bunter to talk to servants, right? Because they wouldn't tell him what he needs to know.
1: Yeah. Peter tells Parker that Miss Clemson is his, what does he say? His My ears and eyes and especially my nose.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he talks about how people want questions asked. Whom do they send? A man with large flat feet and a notebook. The sort of man whose private life is conducted in a series of inarticulate grunts. I send a lady with a long, wooly jumper on knitting needles and jingly things round her neck. Of course, she asks questions. Everyone expects it. Nobody is surprised. Nobody is alarmed. So it's just like, well, yes, I'm, he's like, yes, I want to know things. And who do I send? A nosy old lady.
0: Yeah. It's very, I mean, she's very Miss Marple-esque too, I think, yes. in, in that sense. And I, I also feel like just in her pattern of speech, I mean, she's very, she's very long-winded. Yes. She uses a lot of italics.
1: Yes, her letters have many exclamation points and mm-hmm. underlining.
0: I I feel like she's really modeled after that greatest of literary spinsters, um, Miss Bates from Jane Austen's Emma.
1: Oh, yes. I can see that for yeah.
0: sure. Yeah, but Peter, so Peter goes to Miss Clemson and basically charges her with going to that village um, where the country doctor was practicing and just scouting out and seeing what she can find out and seeing what people might tell her about these kind of suspicious circumstances from you know a couple years ago
1: yeah which uh to interrupt you with with facts because i'm fact checking okay um interestingly miss marple made her first appearance in the same year oh miss marple's first appearance was in a short story published in the royal magazine in december of 1927 which is right. the same year that unnatural death was published
0: interesting so spinsters were in the air Mm-hmm.
1: and everywhere else in the country because That's there true. were many of them <laughs> um which if our listeners are interested in learning more about that we don't need to go in too much depth ourselves because uh, the She Done It podcast has done it for us and we'll include a link to that in our show notes for a full episode that talks more about that whole situation.
0: Of surplus women. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of fact-checking, Karis. Yeah. Because we've received quite a few emails about this.
1: So many people emailed us to do math at us. Yes.
0: And I would... Beg the excuse of you know our two and a half English degrees, but I I don't actually want to <laughs> play into the stereotype that we are thus bad at math. Um, we just decided to do no research <laughs> when we made our claim. Uh, but I was noticing um, when Peter is telling Miss Clemson like what he thinks her persona should be when she goes to the village. He says, you know, don't don't be wealthy because wealthy people don't inspire confidence, but Uh, You should be a retired lady in very easy circumstances. Um, And he says like she should oblige him by living at the rate of about, you know, 800 pounds a year, Mm. uh, which from her reaction we can tell is, you know, quite a bit above her income and and a very comfortable kind of like upper middle class income. Um, But all of that to say that we do have to give a mea culpa for our very blithe justice for bunter hashtag, <laughs> because as as many astute listeners have pointed out to us, the rate of inflation for various goods and living expenses has obviously not, you know, is sort of like unevenly applied. So um, just because we calculated bunters, 200 pounds a year in today's dollars it you know does it obviously like was much cheaper to rent a flat in london at the time as we know from parker's one pound a week flat and so forth so so yes we 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 take the point
1: yes although as i think one of our listeners said on twitter (laughs) bunter does still deserve swimming pools of money (laughs)
0: I actually, I really liked what one of our reviewers suggested, which was that maybe Peter pays Bunter 200 pounds a year solely to keep his opinions to himself on top of like a very, very generous <laughs> salary.
1: <laughs> on top of many more dollars or many more pounds, excuse me. Yes, But swimming pools of money is what yes. Bunter truly really deserves. <laughs>
0: um, we're very delighted that everybody wanted to to defend him and, Also, I guess, to defend Peter's honor as an employer.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Peter is a generous and and caring employer. And please don't do math at us anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not afraid
0: to be an English major who doesn't do math. So, okay. So Miss Clemson is the first spinster we meet. When she gets to the village, we meet some more, you know, not necessarily spinsters, but single women. Because again, this Mm -hmm. book is full of them. And most significantly, she meets the niece of the woman that Peter suspects was murdered.
1: Yeah, Miss Agatha Dawson. And the niece is a Miss Whitaker. And so Miss Clemson has gone to a... uh, A vicarage work party
0: yeah and she she sort of finagles the conversation and finagles an introduction now do you think so so I think Sayers does some really interesting things with names in this book um Mm. so the niece is Mary Whitaker which I feel like is almost a I don't know I I'm, I'm curious to hear if like you also read it as a little bit of a a reference to Mary Whimsy from the last book.
1: I that is not something that ever occurred to me. I think I just went ah oh, yes, the name Mary is so common. <laughs> and, Such a common name, so popular. And didn't
0: think anything of it. There yeah, there's a certain amount of realism in that, like, probably names should appear more than once and
1: Yeah, but the shared initials you know, like now that it's been pointed out to me, you know, we talked about how Mary had very limited choices, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, you know, she was from a background of privilege and she had certain privileges, even when she was being controlled by other people's choices.
0: Right. And specifically controlled through financial means. Right.
1: Um, Whereas Mary Whitaker Uh, She's a young woman who had a career. She was a nurse. um, And we kind of we get the impression that she was a very good nurse, that she had a solid career that she gave up to come and live with Miss Dawson with the like understanding that she would then inherit all this money. So I don't know. Like, I don't know if I think you could certainly make a very interesting argument about about it as a a way of paralleling maybe their lives and their options Mm -hmm.
0: yeah well I mean in in typical English major form like I'm (laughs) (laughs) I'm much less interested in like if Sayer's meant to do it or not um if Mm -hmm. there's like a diary entry that's like oh I'm gonna you know pull out this theme by making the character names rhyme or whatever and and more so that there there is a way to i think put those two things side by side and right. and to read these two books together as like a, a a kind of long meditation on on the options available to to women um and like how class and circumstance maybe affect you know uh affect their outcomes differently
1: in many ways like the majority of Sayre's books can be read as part of that meditation, you know? Mm. And, like, obviously there are some of them where there are fewer women at the center, but, you know, I'm just kind of, like, sitting here staring at the books on my shelf in front of me and looking at the titles. I'm just like, yeah, that one kind of has, you know, like, even when it's just slight, even when it's just in the background, almost all of them have that somewhere.
0: Right. I mean, even... You know, I mean, Miss Clemson really, in some ways, hangs a lampshade on it in this book, right? Even uh, when she's first introduced to Parker, she says something about, I think, like how her father didn't believe in education for women.
1: Oh yeah, um, she says that she would have liked a good education, but her her dear father didn't believe in it for women. Right,
0: and he says she says, you know, very old fashioned. You young people would think him. Um, So she acknowledges in some ways that that's, at this point in time, a a kind of old fashioned belief, you know, women were much, much more widely educated, at least in kind of the primary level, but also women were starting to enter professions. Like there's, there's, you know, three, three nurses show up in this book, right? right? There's Mary Whitaker, who. Was a nurse and gave up nursing to to stay with Agatha Dawson. There's uh, nurse Philiter, who is the nurse who was initially taking care of Miss Dawson and whom the the like the young country doctor was engaged to, and she she was dismissed by Mary Whitaker. And then there was like a third nurse who was brought in, kind of
1: yes, Nurse Forbes, I
0: think. So there's definitely, you know, there's kind of pointing to the fact that um, because of the war, like, a lot of women entered the nursing profession and that that was one of the professional paths, like, you know, nursing and teaching were, were sort of two professions that saw a lot of women enter their ranks in this period. Yeah. I also, I just gotta say that the uh, when the young doctor is talking about nurse filleter he's like oh yes she's you know she's extremely looking forward to helping me with my practice <laughs> once we get married yes. and i just uh, drew angry faces all around that that line <laughs> <laughs> he's a little bit of a mm-hmm. pill mm-hmm.
1: yeah one thing that i noted you know i was going through and conscientiously putting post-it notes with with notes so that I would be able to find things like this again. Because <laughs> uh, my own sister, my own flesh and blood criticized me for going, you know, you say things a lot and then forget <laughs> to tell us what, you,
0: like, if you were right about where it was. <laughs> check the show notes, listeners.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, always check the show notes to see if Karis was right about anything that she said. <laughs> um, but something that I noticed is how frequently when characters are giving lord peter the story because you know he talks to multiple different people Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and he kind of here's the story of agatha dawson from several perspectives and pretty much every time the person who's telling him the story talks about how so and so isn't very bright right so like dr carr tells the story in the first couple of chapters and he he talks about miss Dawson he's just like oh she she she, you know she's like oh she's tough and had a strong constitution but she wasn't very bright Mm. um and he goes and he talks to nurse Philita and she's telling him about the maids I think it's Agnes and Bertha
0: Bertha and Evelyn Bertha and Evelyn go to bed uh speaking of speaking of interesting names
1: (laughs) yeah Bertha and Evelyn go to bed and um nurse Philita is just like they weren't very bright. They were obliging, but not very bright. And later on, you know, we meet um, one of the sisters after the other sister has been murdered. Gone to
0: bed permanently.
1: Yes. Uh, Bertha go to bed is murdered. And later on, her sister Evelyn uh, returns from Canada, where she has gone um, and become Mrs. Cropper. And she's she is giving Lord Peter her version of the story and she talks about how her sister was not as bright as she was and so I'm just like every <laughs> it's just this ongoing thing where it's just like everyone is is kind of looking at the world and going like oh yes, yeah, so and so is not as smart as I am
0: mm. well and especially like ranking women in that way
1: yeah and I thought that that was interesting because you know in so many of those stories like none of the people that i just listed are sinister mm-hmm. right dr carr is a bit of a pill but he's not sinister we don't suspect him of being the the murderer nurse Philter, you know like she kind of appears as a positive character mm-hmm. evelyn go to bed mrs or who becomes mrs cropper you know she seems like a positive character so like this isn't something that's being presented as like a negative or sinister trait but on the other hand, we're dealing with a murderer who is heavily relying on other people being not as smart as they are. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know. I don't, and like, I don't even know if that is something that, you know, in some ways that just feels like a, a study of how people really talk. Right. You know, that everyone is going through life thinking that they're the smartest person in the room, unless you're in a room with, you know, the detective in it. But and especially, you know, so often when you're telling a story to someone else about a situation, you know, that that urge is to portray yourself as being the clever one. Mm. And yeah, so I just felt, you know, and and we get so many, so many wonderful, very funny scenes of Miss Clemson uh, coaxing people into gossiping and the way that people gossip and talk about each other. And you just kind of see people like subtly putting each other down. And subtly putting each other in in their place or, you know, all those little kind of social machinations that keep (laughs)
0: life-changing. Gossip plays such a huge role in this Mm -hmm. book, right? Like, it's it's really... Very important. Yeah, they're so reliant on gossip to even put pieces of the case together because it's far enough in the past where, like, you can't dig up the body. You can't, like pull everyone in to be interviewed peter has to be really um kind of it's it's like the first inquiry that he's been involved with where he can't really involve the the police at first um speaking of gossip and women um shall we discuss the portrayal of Mary whitaker and Vera Finlitter, as well as um kind of the gossip around Miss Dawson.
1: Yeah. It's I'm not quite sure how to lead into this.
0: Just the name. Um, They're lesbians, but... Harold. Um but yes. not. Not like <laughs> as we as yeah. we talked with Mo Moulton about, you know, we don't want to just like assign twenty first century labels, but I think I mean, certainly in, like, the reception history of this book, I, the the tendency is to read Mary Whitaker as, as a butch lesbian.
1: Right. Which I am not, you know, like, reading the book myself. I don't think that I ever read Mary Whitaker as actually a lesbian.
0: Yeah, I'm not convinced myself
1: either. Um, there is a scene um, that I don't think comes up in the first half of the book. So this may be a slight spoiler for those who are reading along, but there is a scene where Mary Whitaker interacts with a man and you're just like, Oh, she like has like she's obviously like repulsed by physical um intimacy. Mm-hmm. And like I'm tempted to read that as that she was a sex repulsed asexual. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, speaking as a woman on the asexual spectrum myself, I don't find her a very flattering portrayal. Right. Um, and, like, who knows if she's intended to be a, betray- a, a portrayal of anything at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of sexuality, at least, I think she's a very deliberate portrayal of f- a relationship between women That has a power imbalance, regardless of whether there's sexuality involved. Right. Right. But whether she's intended to be a portrait of a lesbian or a portrait of some other sexuality, I feel like there's not sufficient evidence to show.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think Miss Clemson and the narrative are both very, they both condemn the way that Mary Whitaker uses um, the sort of like the admiration bordering on obsession that Vera Finn has for her Um, like it's it's the power imbalance that you're mentioning is is very much like you know whether whether Vera wants to be best friends with Mary wants to be lovers wants to has like a bit of a you know schoolgirl pash as they would call it and like whether or not that had a sexual component or not um, it's very clear in the narrative that Mary does not reciprocate these feelings at anywhere near the the same like intensity that Vera has, but she's, she's perfectly willing to like kind of accept the worship. Yeah. And, and make use of it. Right. And I, and I think given what we know about Sayers and about like her set and her belief that, you know, before anything, men and women shouldn't be judged, As genders but you know as humans Um, I I do think that she like if it were a male character doing this to um, a female character like it it would be just as much condemned right because the whole point is that it's it's not right to treat people as things it's not right to um, use people's emotions or their passions against them.
1: I wanted to look at um in the beginning like chapter eight opens with one of Miss Clemson's verbose letters <laughs> to Lord Peter. Her letters. Let's talk um,
0: about her letters, yes.
1: <laughs> oh her letters are delightful. Um, but she writes Lord Peter a letter that's included at the beginning of chapter eight where she is kind of telling him the facts as she's learned them so far and she is telling him about the relationship between Miss Finlader, who's Kind of the youngest daughter of a large family, you get the impression. Um, so Miss Finlader has attached herself to Miss Whitaker, who is obviously much older. And Miss Clemson says that Miss Finlader has evidently quite a pash, as we used to call it at school, for Miss Whitaker. And I'm afraid none of us are above being flattered by such outspoken admiration. I must say I think it rather unhealthy. You may remember Miss Dane's very clever book on the subject. I have seen so much of that kind of thing in my rather, in my rather woman-ridden existence. It has such a bad effect as a rule upon the weaker character of the two. Uh, which I think is interesting. And I looked up Clement Dane. And the I think that what Miss Clemson is referencing is a book from 1917 called Regiment of Women. Uh, which is a novel that um, I didn't have a chance to get my hands on it before we recorded. But so um, if our listeners are more knowledgeable, maybe they'll um, have additional comments. But I looked up the Wikipedia summary to get a quick idea of, of the reference. And it seems like what it's most notable for is being a veiled treatment of lesbianism in a private school setting. And like the plot summary, um, very briefly, is there's a relationship between uh, two women who teach at a private school And one of them is very clearly controlling the relationship. And um, like they're, they're very, they're very close and a little bit codependent. Um, And then, you know, the, the younger vulnerable one is kind of has a breakdown and is a, a relative gets her to leave this, the school and go to the country where she meets a nice young man. And then she goes back to the school and, you know, like returns to her friend that she's had this, this close friendship with and realizes that that person has been treating her badly the whole time and then like leaves to go, to go marry the next nice <laughs> young man. So like not having read it um, and not having read any studies of it or anything, I don't know whether it's a, a matter of, of, you know, a, a, a disappointing portrayal of of curing lesbianism or whether it really works as a, a portrayal of a, a friendship that's gone wrong. Right. You know, it's I, my impression just from reading the Wikipedia it's that it's kind of like this situation where it's like, is it a codependent friendship or is it, or are they lesbians? Are
0: they? <laughs> <laughs> kind of wrapping back to that question of like, homosocial spaces right that we had early on about often the the assumption at the time being that like same gender friendships were like you know could go deeper than than opposite gender yeah. at, at least yeah, like
1: that it was perfectly normal and common to have very intimate friendships with people of the same exactly
0: gender. and like we know in you know in Sayers's own letters when she went away to school and when she was at Oxford she would write home to her parents and say like oh I've developed like such a passion for miss so-and-so I was so pleased when she asked me to like start addressing her by her Christian name and so forth and at no point you know, is anyone, including Sayers, including her parents, at all raising the question of of whether or not she's a lesbian? It was just like, oh yeah, of course, you're you're at school, you're with these other women all the time. Of course you're gonna have intense relationships. So but I, I do I I think, like certainly for the critics who say that the book that, that Mary Whitaker, if if she is written as a kind of depiction of a butch lesbian, like that. It's a, it is a fraught and damaging depiction. And I think, you know, I, I'm certainly not the first person to make this observation that it's, it is important that there is another depiction in this book of a long-term, most likely lesbian relationship, romantic relationship between uh Miss Dawson and her friend Clara Whitaker, who who is actually Mary Whitaker's aunt, um, that they were longtime partners. Um, I think, you know, there's still something stereotypical about it, right? One of them was like the the more handsome one and <laughs> rode horses and, you know, could talk like a man about right. horses, and then the other one was like the domestic partner. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean they're they're spoken of very admiringly by everybody that Miss Clemson meets, certainly nobody implies that they were, you know, abnormal or that there was anything sort of like sinister about them. It's the people, people in this book treat that very much as like, oh, yes, you know, of course, of course, Clara Whitaker left all her money to, to Agatha Dawson when she died, because Agatha Dawson was the most important person in the world to her.
1: Yeah, well, um, you know, a little bit later in the book, uh, Peter and Parker, you know, they go to the town where Clara Whitaker and Agatha Dawson lived and, you know, meet a couple, an elderly couple who were familiar with them. And they talk about them so lovingly.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, they talk about our Miss Whitaker and our Miss mm-hmm. Dawson.
0: Even this part where, so it's still chapter eight, but Miss Clemson is writing to Peter, like, you know, and sort of telling him for the first time about... Um, Miss Dawson and Miss Whitaker like she's she's recounting it and talking about how so Charles Whitaker who is Clara's brother and whom Miss Clemson says you know is the father of our Miss Whitaker i.e. Mary Whitaker resented very much like not getting her money and even though he was a clergyman he kept up the feud in like a very unchristian manner And it's interesting to me that she says, um, she writes, but of course he inherited the bad old fashioned idea that women ought not to be their own mistresses or make money for themselves or do what they liked with their own. And I think, you know, bad old fashioned idea, like that's exactly the language she uses to say her father, you know, didn't want to give her an education because he thought women shouldn't be educated. Um, And I also think, I think there must be a double meaning, right? Women ought not to be their own mistresses, like there's both the the idea of like being the master of your own fate, commanding your own destiny, controlling your own money and then also that women should not be the mistresses of women. I think I think that it's sort of like a veiled reference there. Um but he's very much I mean, you know, Miss Clemson is writing that this is kind of like a a wrong or an old-fashioned point of view. Well, speaking
1: of again of Miss Clemson, uh, to to have a slightly tortured segue, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Miss Clemson is good at finding things out because she's an, a nosy old a nosy old lady, mm-hmm. and we've talked a little bit about how gossipy old women know everything. We've also talked about how servants always know everything, mm-hmm. and Peter, you know, having found out from his interview with Nurse Philiter, who was the first nurse to work for Agatha Dawson. He learns from her that the maids were dismissed and replaced Mm -hmm. around the time that she herself was
0: um, let go. Right. So he's like, that's suspicious that Mary Whitaker wanted to turn over the entire household staff.
1: Yeah. And so he's just like, those maids saw something Mm -hmm. that they shouldn't have. And so he puts an ad in the paper To see if if he can... Basically, he's shaking trees to see what falls Mm -hmm. out. Um, And so he places an ad in the paper for Bertha and Evelyn go to bed, formerly in the service of Miss Agatha Dawson, and they're requested to communicate with Jay Merble, solicitor Mm -hmm. of Staple Inn, when they will hear of something to their advantage. And, like, Parker really thinks that Peter is... He he kinda of thinks that Peter is making a fool of himself and that there's not really a case mm-hmm. here. And uh, Parker says But stick the ad in by all means, it can't do any harm.
0: Ah <sighs> Yeah. Dear innocent Parker yeah. Dear innocent Peter Playing yes. with people's lives. Yep. Because what happens
1: <laughs> what happens is that Bertha Go to bed is found dead. In Epping Forest.
0: Mm, Of unknown causes. Yes. And conveniently, Mary Whitaker has an alibi. Conveniently. So that throws a wrench into Peter's... Suspicion. Yeah. uh, But I think moreover, it really raises for the first time for us as readers, right? If Peter's... Like we've talked about this a few times, how he sometimes has this moment in investigations where he's not sure if he should keep on going. And and that's sort of the the vocational difference between him and Charles, right? Is that he's doing it for fun. And Charles, right. as a policeman, has like a duty to to pursue every lead. And so, and I think this is really a point in the series where, like, yeah, because of Peter's actions, because of his curiosity, and his... His adherence to finding the truth, which I I think we are supposed to find admirable, but because of all these things, his actions directly lead to the death of an innocent person. Right.
1: And, you know, like, it's very clear that he is not necessarily putting this ad in because he thinks that the maids will be able to tell him anything specific or concrete. Right. Right. You know, his goal is to shake up the murderer. Mm-hmm. You know, he has this conversation with Charles at the beginning of chapter six, um, which is before they hear about Bertha Bed's death. And this is where Peter talks about how criminals can't leave well enough alone. Mm-hmm. He and Parker are kind of arguing a little bit about whether this is a real case. Peter's talking about... I shall use up-to-date psychological methods Like the people in the Psalms I lay traps, I catch men I shall let the alleged criminal convict herself And he talks about how Murderers take unnecessary steps To cover the traces which they haven't mm-hmm. left And so You know, like, that's his goal with this advertisement Is to make her go Oh, someone knows something And so I, I need to do more to cover up What I, my crimes right. And so, Someone does do something Yeah because Bertha go to bed, turns up dead.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, to be fair to Peter, his response is, you know, God forgive me, Charles, I feel like a murderer.
1: Yeah. That's, uh, like, it's, I hate, I hate innocent people dying. In- mm-hmm but you know like it's one thing to be reading a mystery and like the innocent person is already dead but when innocent people die in the course of the investigation I'm are like oh I feel bad about right. it
0: well and like when it's brought on by the detective who is our hero Right. Like,
1: I'm just like the, you know the detective that we're supposed to be reading for the detective that in some way is kind of like the reader's um... stand in right I was going to say Avatar but then I just like that doesn't quite fit <laughs> Um, but yeah, but like the you know the reader's stand-in mm-hmm. of like what responsibility does he have? Yeah. Which it's it certainly does not feel right to say no responsibility because mm-hmm. you know like I'm inclined to say a lot of responsibility. Yeah, which like we could have a, like a very long drawn out ethical discussion um, about who who takes responsibility. But the thing is is that everyone takes responsibility for their own actions, right? And so, like, Lord Peter can't take responsibility for the actions of the murderer, but he is responsible for his own actions in putting this ad in the paper, Mm -hmm. even though it was with the best intentions, because his goal was to shake up a murderer. His goal was to make a murderer act. And, like, what action did he think a murderer was going to take? (laughs) Other than murder.
0: Right, other than murder, yeah. it's in the name. Surprise. So, yeah, I mean, he does when when Bertha go to bed. Sister Evelyn, you know, now Mrs. Cropper shows up to because they still need to get the piece of information, right? That right. can be provided by these two sisters. Peter does go to every length, right, to make sure that she's going to be safe. He right, he's very careful to to meet her and
1: like have her surrounded by people from the moment she gets mm-hmm. off the show Like shadowed
0: by police and
1: And he also um he mentioned something to Parker about how Merbles has not left his rooms since the ad went in. That Mr. Merbles, the solicitor who is named in the ad, you know, has been taking precautions. Right.
0: Because the I think Peter I think Peter was expecting that the murderer would maybe go after Mr. Merbles as the as the person who's like come to me for an interesting thing yeah
1: right and it did not occur to him that the murderer would go after the maids to silence them which is a huge oversight yeah on his part and like to his credit he feels a a tremendous amount of guilt Mm -hmm. about it and you know i think it's kind of telling that he doesn't pull the stunt again i don't think in any subsequent books
0: yeah I don't think so either at least not like
1: this right I think he becomes more cautious Mm -hmm. as a result um but Bertha go to bed still dead yeah I think that a natural death is very good as a mystery I think it's very interesting I think it's really complicated I think that you know, it's a very tight Mm -hmm. you know, it's very tightly plotted. But in terms of like the character development, I always it's not my favorite book to read. Yeah. Because I've like I find the extra deaths like as you mentioned on Twitter, there's a lot of murder in this (laughs)
0: book. Murders piling up everywhere.
1: So many like the body count keeps going up.
0: Almost to a point where it starts feeling a little bit absurd. (laughs)
1: Right. And I'm like I don't enjoy that at no. all.
0: And it's like a lot of murdered women,
1: which yes. I never enjoy. So right, I don't care for mm-hmm. that. So, yeah, um when I'm in- introducing people to the Lord Peter Wimsey books, it's very rare for me to suggest that they start with Whose Body, even though Whose Body comes first chronologically. Because I don't think it's the strongest book. I don't think it's the easiest access point. And a lot of times I either suggest that they start with strong poison Mm -hmm. uh, because I think that they will love the series most if they meet it through Harriet Vane. Or I suggest that they start with unnatural death.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. And so like, I'm kind of sitting here like questioning my decision (laughs) because I can, because you know, like I suggest unnatural death because I think... That it's a strong mystery, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, I think that the the extravagance of murders <laughs> is less upsetting when you're less invested in Peter as a character,
0: mm, and like his moral development,
1: right? Because like, I don't think that Clouds of Witness is a good entry point because you'd need to be invested in Peter to be invested in that mystery,
0: right? And <laughs> oops, as we talked about last time. <laughs> <laughs> yes i think i i also use strong poison i suggest murder must advertise a lot actually because i think it's one of the best mysteries but yeah
1: i don't like to suggest murder must advertise because you don't meet peter as himself immediately Mm, that's a good point yeah yeah so i tend not to recommend that um but like it's like why don't i recommend unpleasantness the bologna club to people why don't i I know I don't recommend if I ride herrings because <laughs> of the train <laughs> cuz we don't start for trains. <laughs> no, I mean like I'd love trains them as a passenger but timetables and trains and oh yeah. my Yeah.
0: Well, you know, maybe now that we've now that you and I have revisited whose body um and like kind of done a really deep dive I I might start just telling people to start from the beginning um and listen to the podcast but uh, Yeah. <laughs> because i think i in my mind it was always i you know i'd always kind of thought of it as like oh yeah it's it's the first it's a little lighter weight but um now having devoted multiple hours to to thinking about it i'm like oh no we actually you know we we get quite a lot yeah <laughs> like
1: as i gave it to my brother to read and he was just like i'm having trouble getting into this
0: book it's not easy reading for an anarchist. <laughs> oh, he... <laughs> right! Like, here's here's this fop of an aristocrat, just like swanning off, paying hundreds of pounds for for old manuscripts. I can't imagine yeah. what he took issue with. <laughs> I cannot.
1: I cannot imagine what what he. Let me. I'm I'm gonna look up what it is that he actually said. <laughs> what was it that he said? Oh yeah. He says, now I remember why I stopped reading Whose Body after five pages, and it's because my gut reaction to whimsy, as initially presented, was to start singing La Carmangol- Car- Carmagnole.' I
0: have no idea. Carmignol?
1: Car- Probably. What is language? I didn't take French. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I'm powering through, but as openings go, it's rough on an anarchist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> did he end up liking it anymore? After powering He did. Through? He oh, did.
1: He, he told me... um. Then he turned a corner after he got to the parts about theology and PTSD. Mm. Before that point, the only ones I related to in the book were the labor newspapers that print caricatures of Lord Peter. (laughs) (laughs) So. Yes. And like, like to both, like to both things. I was just like, that's fair. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Can't, can't really argue with that. (laughs) Yeah. I can't fault that. Yeah.
1: But he, he did end up enjoying the book and he did end up enjoying
0: Podcast. Oh, thanks, members of Karis's family who are all listening to this podcast.
1: Yeah, shout out, shout out to my siblings. Yay, at least two of them. <laughs> You're my favorites. Don't tell the others.
0: <laughs> so, to pull us back just a tiny bit to to this particular book.
1: <laughs> oh, did we want to talk about this book? <laughs>
0: So I guess a a brief teaser possibly for next time is that the the evidence that Bertha go to bed dies for um, does complicate things a bit, right? The, the straightforwardness of the, the mystery becomes a bit more complex because um, what her sister ends up telling Peter is that the two of them were called in at one point to kind of very underhandedly, witness a will that Mary Whitaker was trying to get her aunt Miss Dawson to sign so it was this whole thing where she'd set up like a screen where the two maids could see Miss Dawson but she couldn't see them and Mary had kind of you know shuffled a will in among a bunch of papers
1: Mm-hmm. Or pre- presumably a will.
0: Pre- presumably a will. But
1: yes. a document that needed to be witnessed by two people who were in the same room as the person signing, which is—I mean—that's a will. It's a will,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and given Miss Dawson's reaction when she like, you know, the the maids didn't know what it was, but Miss Dawson reacted very poorly and like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um you know got in an argument with Mary and and so forth. And there's a very, I don't know if it's like as clumsily rendered in your book, Karis, but in mine, they have her like do a diagram. And the, Oh yeah. The diagram is like almost illegible. And I, I wonder if it's like very deliberately amateurish, right?
1: Right. In in my book, it is like large enough to be relatively clear. It takes up about half a page. Mm. But if it were printed any smaller, it would be almost impossible to tell what it is.
0: Yeah. Um. So so basically, you know, all of a sudden it feels like a motive has been provided for Miss Whitaker because for whatever reason, she didn't feel secure in the inheritance that, you know, she'd been promised. And so now Peter is like, okay, there, there seems to be you know, not necessarily animosity, but for some reason she was trying to secure this inheritance. Um, for some
1: it, reason she was pushing for her aunt to sign a will and her aunt insisted that she would not. And, you know, we hear from a couple of sources about how Miss Dawson, anytime someone spoke to her about making a will, like one time the doctor suggested it and, you know, it upset her. And another mm-hmm. time a solicitor came, her old solicitor came to visit her and she got so upset that she took all of her affairs out of his hands and, and moved to a, a different solicitor.
0: Exactly. So this is a deeply upsetting topic to her.
1: Right. She, like, anytime someone speaks to her about a will, she gets upset about the fact that they're trying, that, that they want her to die. Mm-hmm. So, so it's like, why was Miss Whitaker trying to get her aunt to sign a will? to give her money presumably because mm-hmm. why would you try and trick someone into signing a will that didn't benefit you <laughs> to give her money that she was going to get anyway
0: right and doing this knowing how upset her aunt would get about it right, right. and like taking that deciding to take that risk anyway so so yeah that adds that adds a bit um, and then the other wrench that gets thrown into the proceedings as we mentioned is the fact that Mary Whitaker has an alibi for the whole time that Bertha go to bed was missing and then off being killed
1: right peter has been convinced this entire time that miss Whitaker is the murderer he says you know he, he says it at the very beginning but miss finn later provides an alibi for miss Whitaker mm-hmm. for the you know the the time period of the murderer yeah and there's an additional wrench which yes. is that a new character is introduced yes mrs forrest Bertha Go To Bed is found with a a 5 pound note in her handbag mm-hmm. and they trace that note to this Mrs. Forrest. Yeah. And there is a great deal of confusion.
0: Right, about how she fits in and is it like Bertha Go To Bed's landlady is convinced that it's drugs and gangs and mm-hmm. and so forth. Well and and Parker
1: also makes that suggestion. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so all of a sudden this case that in Peter's mind was so straightforward has become very complex. So When we pick up next time, we will talk about the conclusion of the case, how he unravels it all.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's so, this is a tricky one to talk about without giving away all the spoilers, because it's just like, uh, can
0: we even talk about this? (laughs) Right. I feel like we've, we've been trying to be really meticulous and like hitting all the plot points as well, because...
1: Yeah. It is so complicated. Uh, it is a complex one, uh, but our in our next episode we will lay out all the pieces. Yes.
0: In addition to talking about what to do with some casual racism in literature that you read. So, something to look forward to. Yay. <laughs> In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at whimsypod. That's whimsy spelled W I M S E Y. Our website, where you can find transcripts for each episode as well as links to any resources we mentioned on today's podcast, is asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is
1: by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd be really grateful if you would give us a rating and leave us a review on iTunes or on your podcaster of choice. We also hope that you'll tell all of your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do.
0: See you next time for more Talking Piffle.